Hello, and welcome to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. My name is Danny, and I'm joined today by Bethan, Grace, and Sophie. Today, we'll be asking the following questions. How does consumer tech enable the U.S. government to track information we may think is private? What is the role of private companies in this process? Is the current set of privacy protection legislation adequate, and what can we do about it? So on our last episode, my cyber show and tell was about calls for the FTC to investigate Fog Data Science, a data broker. And today we're going to dive deeper into the world of how companies track personal information, like what you're doing, who you're friends with, what your health needs are, and most significantly, how the government can access that data. This is relevant because in late August, the FTC actually sued a company for doing just that. Kachava Inc. provided government with data on women who were accessing abortion services based on their location. So just to scope this conversation, we're not going to talk about how private companies use your data. That's a really big topic. And what we want to focus on is the world of policy and government use of that data. That said, in order to get into that, we do need to talk a little bit about the private ecosystem of how that data is collected. So we're going to give sort of a two-minute primer on that. The basics are, there, there are a lot of ways that your information can be collected. You could be walking down the sidewalk in a city that allows public sort of CCTV. Your online browsing activities can be tracked via online advertising trackers. One of the biggest ones is your mobile phone because that goes with you everywhere. Every phone has an advertising ID, just different ones depending on which type of phone you have. And then the apps you install on your phone also have trackers. Typically, they come through software developer kits or SDKs, which is prepackaged software that companies like Facebook provide to these apps. It makes it easier for the apps to integrate with Facebook, and then Facebook gets information about your location and that sort of thing. And you may think, well, my location isn't all that interesting, but actually what a long-term view of your location can tell someone is quite a bit about you. You know, you can tell where you live, where you work, who you're friends with. If you have you know, particular health issues going on, that sort of thing. So that's a super quick version. We'll put some links if you want to read more in the episode notes. But what we want to jump into is what are some of the ways collecting this information can go wrong? So once this information is collected, it goes to data brokers who can sell it. And the big thing that's been going on is um, government agencies, law enforcement agencies have been purchasing from data brokers this information. Typically, that information, uh, they need a warrant to get. But the Supreme Court ruled that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to government purchasing that kind of information. So now that there's precedent established that government could purchase these blocks of data, what are some of the risks that we could imagine? And I'm going to turn to any of my colleagues who want to jump in and describe any of the things that are on their mind as major risks. Danny, fantastic introduction. I feel like we hear privacy and a lot of these you know data brokers ad tech thrown around but really piecing together the full the full scope of the problem i think is not something that happens a lot because we definitely get distracted by the headlines sometimes and not understanding the underlying technology so i i think for me personally one of the biggest risks is really i, I don't know if state oppression is the right word in the us context but the risk of either minority groups or protesters or women seeking health care and the fact that they could be identified, tracked, and then apprehended based on their data is the biggest 
it's the biggest risk for me and something that I find that's what keeps me up at night. And I think the FTC case, the FTC suing Kachava is just the tip or just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the possible risks that this type of slew of data on all of us as individuals can have on our personal liberties and safety. Yeah, that's a great point, Bethan. One of the things I'm, I find challenging and perhaps the compelling case for government being allowed to work with private companies to collect data is that sometimes private companies, and in fact, often they have better access and insight into criminal activity than the government might have. And we actually probably really want those enhanced tools to catch some of these really, really terrible crimes. On the other hand, those private companies aren't necessarily incentivized or required to include the kinds of safeguards against personal liberty infringement that the government might be. So one example is companies that help the government by scanning their content for CSAM, child sexual abuse materials. Google, Android, and most recently Apple have agreed to scan images on their devices that are uploaded to the cloud to check if they match hashes for known CSAM images or even if they include indications of CSAM. And on the face of it, that sounds phenomenal. But what recently happened in August actually was a father was taking a picture of his toddler's genitals because the toddler had a rash and he needed to send it to the pediatrician, sent the image to the pediatrician, totally sort of normal exchange of information in this age of telehealth. His phone, which was Android, Google flagged it, and then he was completely unable to get through a remediation process. So Google locked him out of all of his, his accounts. Everything that he'd used his Google email to log into was he was locked out of. And essentially, his entire online ecosystem got shut down and he couldn't get through it even after law enforcement had finally worked through his case and agreed that there was nothing wrong going on here. So it's this instance where you there's a possibility you can kind of lose really significant things in your life. You know, all of his emails, all of his photos, everything at the time of writing, it, it has all gone, including his access to all his other accounts, which if we think about how much we rely on our own life life, that's pretty destructive. And the crux of it is we can have confidence that government's use of our data is curtailed by an incentive to protect personal liberty. But, you know, Google has no such requirements to put a really robust remediation process in place. So what happens when government brings the force of their de desire to investigate and combines it with the power of uh, private companies? One of the other things I am think about quite a bit is that location data is just such a major piece of information about ourselves that we give up by carrying phones with us. And in an age where we've seen a lot of protests, you know, in the last five years for various causes, and there have been concurrent uses of that information by law enforcement, that location information, to prosecute people. And just the knowledge that you're being surveilled has been shown to tamp down on willingness to have free speech or even free thought. There's a sort of chilling effect when you know you're being surveilled. And so what happens to that really critical piece of democracy, our willingness to to think freely and then to to act on those beliefs if we know we're being surveilled and may experience a sort of erroneous prosecution because of it. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it, it sort of strikes me that in all of these examples that we discuss, it's it's clear to me that, you know, exploiting the open internet poses all manner of challenges. And there needs to be some kind of limits to what we scrape, what we ingest, what we process from the open source. 
And that needs to strike a clear balance, right, between using that data to, you know, expose things like the January 6th insurrections, but at the same time not, you know, stifles free speech and invade privacy. So what are the guardrails that are required for that? You know, what open source data from things like ad tech and commercial telemetry data are legitimate for the government to purchase? Um, you know, it seems clear that the advocacy community and Congress have to be engaged here. And there has to be some clear oversight and codification of, of what's legitimate and, and what isn't. But it's interesting to me that we don't really look past government collection. So, you know, in addition to the, the lawsuits that Danny has mentioned at the top of the episode, there's also a lawsuit right now in L.A. where basically the city wanted all e-scooters providers in the city to disclose individual trip data to help them inform some basic traffic policies that they were implementing and like curbside policies. And the city and ACLU is now suing because they don't want the government to have access to Lyft and, and Uber data because that, you know, collection violates the Fourth Amendment. So that trial was actually dismissed and found that there was no privacy interest in the, the location data disclosed to the city and that even if there were, that the Fourth Amendment wouldn't apply in this case. So LA residents have now appealed that case. It's gone to the Ninth Circuit. But I think what this gets at is the government can still buy that data, right? Like they can still get warrants to that data. The fundamental problem to me seems to be that there's no right for your stuff to be forgotten. Whether the government buys it or not, there's no protections on this data. And just because it's the government doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do bad things, right? So to me, what a lot of this says is it's kind of just screwing over the transportation department who doesn't have the money to buy this data, whereas something like the LA Police Department might have. And, you know, what what are the implications of that? Sophie, foreshadowing the, the case I think she's going to make when we get to the policy later, I'm, I'm going to be on the side of no government access. No, I think those are great points and really important. You know, we, I think there's a tendency to have a knee-jerk reaction, especially in the US, when we talk about privacy to, to say, you know, keep the government out, but actually just because they have it doesn't mean it's being abused. That said, I do want to acknowledge, I, I think there's another security risk when we talk about the proliferation of access to data cheaply. Then there was an interesting case where a investigative outlet bought a set of data, again, women who traveled to access reproductive health care for $160. So we're not talking about major, major costs and, and the need to be a big law enforcement department. It's truly any kind of outfit could really afford this. And then when you think about, you know, county level law enforcement accessing these data sets, you have to get into questions of how it's being secured and stored and who has access to it. And are there tight governance controls on who can access it? And that's what I think really gets me worried. This sort of, it's like this oozing of our personal data to all these outlets that we can't necessarily have good oversight to that makes me just, just kind of anxious. Like I want a more tightly uh, prescribed and and circumscribed set of owners and and accessors to that information. There was in the investigation into fog data science that we talked about in last episode, lots of examples of really small law enforcement outfits getting access to really large data sets. And I just think the the risk of either government officials in those counties who shouldn't have access, you know poking their buddy across the desk and saying, hey, can I take a look? And or bad actors 
deciding, you know what, this is going to be an easier nut to crack this, you know, four person department security versus security in Google or in this data broker. And that's, that's what really makes me concerned about this, like, ooze of data. Sophie, I think you may have a thought on that. Yeah. So uh, there may be distinctions of how this data is used at the state and local level that I'm less keyed in on. But I think at least at the federal level, there are a lot of systems in place to, at least where the government itself is concerned, make sure that the use of this data is attentive to American privacy rights. So I think also interesting to note that you know hedge funds have for a long time gathered for their own profit far more information about U.S. persons and in far more detail than the U.S. government is likely to ever collect or use. And that's actually often an essential component to their business models. The government does impose restrictions on getting access to and using data about, well, about U.S. persons, but data in general as it's collected from commercial sources. The issue from my perspective is that those restrictions are a bit of a patchwork and sometimes even inconsistent with respect to what the rules for handling that data. I think that's a great point, this this inconsistent patchwork. And I want to get into a sort of comprehensive overview of what state, federal, and local laws look like a little bit later on. Grace, I think you had something to say, though. In- well, hearing you talk about like the private companies versus the government, I think to me, I'm trying to think about why it does feel like a much less big of a deal that like a hedge fund might have my data, which I imagine that they don't, given that I'm really not their target audience. But the government certainly has a ton of information on me. Well, the um, point there is that the hedge funds buy the data about you. So you may not have disclosed or you oh, no, may not have yeah. sold that to the hedge fund. But there, if you use Google or Facebook or Instagram... Like, yeah, that's that no problem to me. I'm trying to figure out why it's like not that big of a deal to me that they have bought this data about me. And it does make me concerned that the government has a ton of data on me, especially considering, you know, I was in the military and so they have, I mean, a ton of my health data too. But I, I think at the end of the day, what it is for me is the the risk or the possibility of like what could happen when these entities have my data is the scale I think is really different. I think a private company like a hedge fund can't really send me to prison or, you know, disenfranchise me. I mean, maybe they can, I don't know, influence my purchasing of investments or whatever it is that, you know, the financial markets do. How would I know? Um, But I think for me, like the government having all this data or like the, the issue with it is like, they have so much more power to really affect people's lives. Yeah, Grace, I think that's a really great point and sums up sort of the discomfort that that is sitting with me when, when we're on this topic. You know, I, I trust in companies' self-interest to further their profit margin and find that to be a reliable indicator of how they'll use any advantage, including my information. The way that government might use information is less predictable. And there's scope for using it in ways that can inflict pain or loss on my life, i.e. loss of freedom of movement if I'm wrongfully accused and arrested, loss of freedom of speech, loss of, as we said, the freedom of thought when it comes to the chilling effects of surveillance. All of the above are much more significant impositions on my life than, you know, a hedge fund having a really great quarter. 
What is this? You guys are team capitalism? Hey, I might have met you at policy school, but I did get an MBA, so team capitalism. Damn. <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> okay, no, no. Well, let me be clear. I'm not I'm not team capitalism on this. I'm just saying that when, they, when private companies have my data, number one, I have freely given it to them, and that's, like, totally on me, and I'm not going to stop using Gmail or Google. I know how private companies are going to use my information. It's to further their profit margins. And I don't know all the ways in which government might want to use my information. And so, you know, there are th the AP did a deep dive into how personal databases have been accessed by law enforcement. This is at a federal and state level. There were all sorts of abuses about officers looking into exes, looking into current people, that sort of thing. It, basically, I, I can rely on greed to be a predictable motivator, and I've accepted the cost of, of greed of private companies. The variability of government motivations is what makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Danny. I think you summed it up. Like for, for what it is for me, it's like we've seen some pretty volatile times in our political history. And it's not something that I feel completely comfortable just trusting government writ large because it's not just a like monolith. And I think maybe when I think about the government, the part where I have I don't give it the benefit of the doubt is I assume worst case scenario with the government. Whereas when I think about private companies, I think that the best case scenario, worst case scenario are largely the same. And probably because I'm not a capitalist at heart, but that worst case scenario of they're using my data to make more money for themselves feels less like of an existential threat. No, I mean, as I said at the start, I, I think that there does need to be clear rules on what is what the government is allowed to do and what the government is not allowed to do, right? Like an even better answer to this would be some kind of uniform federal data management rules on like a government-wide basis that sets standards for across institutional boundaries and, and ideally, right, working with the data aggregators, working with AI and software developers, working with oversight officials and Congress, what are the common set of well-understood parameters that we could use to govern this data space? Wow, this is a great debate because I find myself torn between the two because on one hand, I do love my the, the convenience versus privacy part, I think, is something that is super compelling to me. I mean, call me a lazy consumer, but I I turned off Google tracking, Google Maps tracking for like a week. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't do this anymore. Like, I need my I need my Rex. I need I need my information. OK, fine, Google. Here you go. But then there is also this idea of this this lack of institutional trust in the government to do that. And I don't know, I think. I do trust, at least I try to trust a lot of the protections we have in place. But to Sophie's point, we don't have a federal, we don't have a, a U.S. GDPR yet. I mean, we have the California Consumer Privacy Act. And that's good because most of these massive data companies or technology companies operate in California, often are based in California. So they kind of have to rise to the lowest denominator of privacy, which then becomes California. But again, I think to Sophie's point, what would it take for us to get to some general data protection regulation like in Europe? How do we how do we catch up to that? I'm curious what we think the possibility of that is. And I realize we're kind of pivoting into the policy space right now, which like, let's do it. But what would it take for us to get from 
where we are now with this patchwork hodgepodge of privacy protections to something like GDPR? And would that even work in the U.S.? Yeah, Bethan, I think that's a really good lead in to having our policy discussion. And before we jump into what would it take to get from where we are now to a better state of sort of GDPR state, it, if, is that even the state we want to get to? Let's give a quick summary of sort of where we are now. The, there are two ways to think about existing privacy legislation. There's broad protection and then there's topic-specific protection. So things like HIPAA, the Graham, Leach, Bliley, Blilly, I've actually never heard it said out loud, but the legislation that regulates your financial information, HIPAA obviously regulates your health information. Those are topic-specific privacy laws. And then there are what what I just called broad laws. The U.S. Privacy Act of 1974, our only federal broad-based privacy law, which pretty limited and it has to do with how you can ask the government to correct the information they hold about you, how you can request to see what information is being held and how it's being used. And then there's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act from 2000, which regulates how information about children under the age of 12 can be collected. Then we have a lot of privacy laws that have been drafted in Congress. Um, One bipartisan bill has made it out of committee in this session of the House probably doesn't have a strong chance of passing. But the the essence of the debate about do we need a federal law or can we go state by state is that in this highly partisan current political state, our federal law is going to be a much more compromised version than what any individual state could pass. So California passed a much more aggressive privacy law than could ever get through this current Congress or, or the past few Congresses. And one of the key elements that Republicans are insistent on in any federal privacy law is the idea of preemption, which is that a federal law will preempt any state law. So that means if we do get a federal law, it might not be a wholehearted win because it might mean laws like California's go away and they're preempted by this sort of weaker protection of the federal law. So that's kind of where we're at on the legislative side. Individual cities and and regions have passed technology-specific laws. So two dozen cities between 2019 and 2022 passed restrictions on the use of facial recognition software and the collection of images. And there, there's smaller specific ones like that at a sub-state level. And then at a state level, California, Connecticut, Colorado, Utah, and Virginia have all passed privacy laws in those states. So that's the the really rough sum up of where we are in legislation. As we mentioned earlier, government agencies are allowed to purchase information, the, the information that they might have otherwise needed a warrant to get. So that's kind of where we are on the judiciary. So th- that's where we're at now. The question Bethan posed was, what would it take to get to a more comprehensive protection of privacy? And do we even want to get there at a federal level? Or is this state by state approach sufficient? I think on this point of sufficiency, Danny, so I'm originally I'm originally from California and I know that California has the best privacy law at this point. But well we are just the best in general. So that is true. West Coast West Coast, best coast. Let's be real. We all know. But I think I think it's hard to even know what data laws protect you. And because there's so many different types of data that we have, a lot of people feel, okay, HIPAA, like my medical data is safe. Great. 
yeah, your medical data is safe when communicated to a physician or a hospital, not when you Google stuff like, you know, my stomach hurts and then or you Google a lot of things that are about a certain type of health condition and data brokers can then aggregate that and have a pretty good picture of what your health is or or if you have problems. And then can that be sold to insurance companies? Can that be sold to other types of yeah, companies that could make money off of your health or lack thereof? But really what the point is, is how do we know like what protections apply to us? I think that is that transparency of regulation is an area that I struggle with, even as someone who's interested in this space and who cares about my privacy. Uh, Danny, I'll kick it back over to you. Bethan, I think that is such a good point and is without even realizing it, the crux of how I've been thinking about it in my head. So thank you for drawing out that frame of reference. The question of is it sufficient, you know, everybody's going to have a different answer. And so we have to decide whose answer matters. And in this case, I think it's the answer of the people who are having their data collected, i.e. the voter, the consumer. Now, you could make a reasonable argument. It's, you know, the answer of the people who are charged with keeping us safe, law enforcement. And so if, if anybody wants to have that take, I'd be curious, you know, your response to be. But from the consumer end, the biggest impediment to answering, is it sufficient from the consumer's perspective, is exactly what you just described, that the processes of collecting the data and the laws regulating it are so opaque that no consumer, unless they're really well-versed in this, can have a really well-informed answer. Your description of that just called to mind. I got into an argument with a, a classmate a couple of years ago who's going to be a product manager at WhatsApp. And I had sent sort of heads up to a bunch of our classmates saying, you know, WhatsApp's policies just changed. They're going to share your information with Facebook. And she really quickly responded and said, no, we don't collect information. And of course, the point is, yes, touts their end-to-end -end encryption saying they won't look at the content of your messages. The metadata, you, you know, who you're talking to, how often, that sort of thing, that's all shared to Facebook, whose main revenue generator is advertisements and who cares about that sort of information. And the fact that somebody who's even working on the product couldn't make the distinction between content, like words not being viewed and the significance of metadata being viewed and collected, it means that kind of the average consumer doesn't have a, a real hope of understanding and then making an informed choice with either their use of tech or their voting of representatives who can then protect their rights. If it's free, you're the product. That's the tagline. <laughs> well, so I, obviously I agree with, with you all. Like it is a patchwork. I think what it, when we make comparisons to the GDPR, I just I I can't I can't really see that kind of that high level legislation passing. I also think about how the EU has their data protection supervisors or like by country. So there are like governing bodies that enforce the GDPR. And even if something like the GDPR were to be passed in the United States, I don't know who would be the enforcing bodies. Like there's not a a direct body just for privacy. I think like broadly, you can think of like the FTC doing something like that, but they don't have jurisdiction over every type of entity that collects data on us. I think that there would be so much like institutional work that would need to be done. And I think like we've talked about before on like user related tech issues, so much of it is changing the culture around how we treat data and how we treat data for ourselves. And this is definitely me at myself, you know, believe in convenience over my privacy, which I, I, I guess... Grace the capitalist. <laughs> no, cut that out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I obviously I choose to use these, these technologies every day that I know are collecting on me.
Yeah, that's a good point, Grace. And I think it gets at the heart of the question, what's the role of government? Is it to help curb our laziest and short-term instincts for the benefit of our long-term health? It's it's all very well to educate people on data hygiene and to beat the drum of of being really clean and, and, and tightly held with your data, which I will continue beating until the end of my days. But we know that collective action is really difficult. And we know that people have much more pressing and immediate concerns in their lives. And so often they're not going to be good data citizens. And in the same way that often we're not going to be good consumers of other things that harm us. You know, I live in New York City. There's a ban on extra large sodas. We have a seatbelt law. You know, all the things that where we see government intervening to help our long-term health over our short-term choice. And so is it sufficient to say, no, everybody should just be good data citizens? Or actually, is this an area where we feel like, no, really, we're, we're not going to get there on our own and, and we need the government to jump in? It seems like this is really hard to regulate on the user. And, and I think that's a somewhat unfair expectation as well to have of people just as sort of users of the internet. I think there's a lot of misperceptions of how the government uses data. And it's based on like very unfortunate things that the IC has done. And I guess, yeah, just from my perspective, like in the experiences that I have had in government, which are, you know, limited and and not directly in government, there are, you know, significant restrictions on getting access to data and then using that data, especially where it concerns like different compliance regimes. Like if you're doing something for the IC versus something for um, DOD non-Intel, there are different authorities for doing that. And there are different compliance regimes that you have to follow. And I mean, again, as we've like discussed earlier, there are concurrent compliant regimes that are sometimes at odds with each other. So like one example of that is we talked about the Privacy Act. That's relevant only for individuals, not companies. Then you have the intelligence oversight system as codified in Executive Order 12333. But unlike the Privacy Act, does include U.S. companies in the definition of U.S. persons. So it's just like a matter of navigating those kinds of inconsistencies across privacy regulation. But from my perspective, the government does do that. And it, you know, is, is attentiveness to Americans' privacy rights is a really important thing. And there's recognition of that within the government, as I've seen. Awesome. Thank you, Sophie, for that input. We've spent most of the the episode, I'd say pretty down on the level of protection that is offered to citizens. But we'd be remiss if we didn't know, you know, we have lots of amazing classmates who work in national security, who are ardent defenders of not just U.S. national security interests, but U.S. citizens' privacy of their data. You know, we've gotten into conversations in classrooms and outside of them. And all of these individuals, I'd say, have have really stridently told me how much they value the privacy of citizens whose data they have access to. And I have no doubt that they are telling the truth and that, you know, there are huge swaths of people with the level of access and power that our law enforcement and and intelligence community have who hold sacred that privacy. And the challenge is there are many who do not. And those abuses are well documented. And so what's our level of tolerance for the risk that one of those good actors isn't in the chair when there comes to be a, a critical moment deciding does somebody's individual data get accessed? You know, do we seek to surveil this particular movement going on 
Do we want to surveil this particular demographic of individuals? And when it comes to an entity that has as much power as law enforcement or intelligence, it, personally, I feel like the the tolerance and the threshold for risk is really, really low, commensurate with the ability of that entity to inflict significant harms on people if abuse happens. We haven't managed to solve the question today of how do we consider what amount of information the government should be able to collect and purchase about us. But, you know, maybe we will have by the time this is published. So we're going to transition now to our cyber show and tell. That's a segment where one of us shares a super brief cyber fact, news story, or event. And this week, Grace has brought us a cyber show and tell. Thanks, Danny. Hi, everyone. So today for you, an old type of encrypting information brought into the 21st century. There have been cyber attacks against Middle East governments hidden in the Windows logo that can be downloaded off of GitHub. And the, the old school technology that this uses is called steganography. It hides messages within other sort of innocuous texts or images or things. The, the reason that steganography is different from, say, cryptography is that cryptography will, will change the, the, a person's like, ability to decipher what the, the message is, but it won't hide the fact that there is a message. So with steganography, you would say, look at something like the Windows logo, and you wouldn't know that there's a hidden message in that logo. And so that's what, what separates it. The, People have used this, I mean, as far as like the, the 15th century, there are texts from like old school scholars talking about like invisible ink and, and like old spy, spy stuff. Um, so it's interesting to see it coming into the 21st century now where hackers will take what's called a bitmap image and randomly select certain pixels within that image to store massive amounts of data. So they can, they can store backdoors into those images and utilize other known vulnerabilities to then drop like web shells or like do credential theft, different like lateral movement activities. So even if this, even if these images have been inspected, it can be really easy to overlook that there are so many files actually attached to the image. So, I mean, I think this is something that we should have on our radars, different uses of steganography and uh, goes to show, I mean, even downloads from websites that we trust could have backdoors that we don't know about. So buyer beware. That is really interesting, Grace. Thank you so much. And definitely is going to give me pause next time I just feel blindly comfortable on a well-vetted website. So thank you for injecting a little bit of insecurity into my life. Thanks for listening to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. Given that this is a student-led program, this podcast doesn't represent any views of any institution, school, or even ourselves after we finish recording this episode on October 1st. 2022. We're just students learning every day, trying to navigate this murky area of cyber policy. Stay tuned. On this point of like what it's going to take and is it, you know, is it kind of when you're raising a toddler or I don't know, I don't have kids, so I, I don't even know what I'm saying. When you have a cat, okay, that's more relevant to my life. When you have a cat and, you know, your cat, like <laughs> my cat was, was a rescue and so she used to eat all the time. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where I'm going. I'm trying to say, as a pet owner, you do what's in best, the best interest for your pet. Actually, just delete all this. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. It's like the, pseudo the pseudofed's hitting me hard right now. Okay.